I've never seen anything like it. This really is fantastic, and the referee has stopped it. It's all over. Brazil have won the World Cup. Fifty years ago, in the summer of 1970, the greatest national football team of all time won the World Cup in Mexico. Far from being merely an impressive win on the soccer pitch, Brazil's victory in 1970 changed how we think about and watch football, and it changed Brazil. The country came into the tournament as a talented, developing nation, with two World Cups under its belt already, but by the end of 1970, Brazil was known around the world as the land of football. I'm Ewan Marshall, editor of the Brazilian Report, and for this three-part series of the Explaining Brazil podcast, I'll be taking you through the 1970 World Cup in Mexico, going on and off the pitch to explain how Brazil became the kings of global football. Our story begins four years earlier, at Goodison Park in Liverpool, home to Everton Football Club. I fought twice actually, the referee let it go the first time, but really was heavily brought down again there the second time, quite unnecessarily so too. For Brazil, the 1966 World Cup was a catastrophe from start to finish. As reigning champions, they went into the tournament as favourites, but a lack of proper preparation saw them sent home after only three matches. The sight of Pelé hobbling off the pitch during a 3-1 defeat to Portugal summed it all up. Hilton Gosling, the doctor, on the field every time that Pelé is hurt. In the eyes of the press at home and around the world, Brazil were broken, beaten and finished. I spoke to Tim Vickery, South American football expert and a regular on BBC Five Live, about what exactly went wrong in 1966. Tim? Two things went wrong, I think. Or maybe three. One was uh, that, you know, that kind of hierarchical view that Brazil have. If you're a world champion, you're a world champion forever. So anyone from 58 who could still walk is still there, you know. And England scouted them beforehand and had a look at, say, Bellini, you know, and said, not a hope. <laughs> Gahinsha, not a hope. So, and England didn't take them particularly seriously. So that, that was one thing that went wrong. Another thing that went wrong was uh, their physical pre- preparation specialist was from a martial arts background. And that's something, physical preparation is something that Brazil take very, very seriously. So they, they, they got that wrong. But the other thing that went wrong is the aspect to which they were victims of their own success. Um, what I mean by that is that uh, the, the, the powers of Brazilian football had been basically Rio and Sao Paulo, but partly as a result of the success of 58 and 62. The game has grown, the country is, is, is developing, and you've got Porto Alegre and Belo Horizonte as, uh, as centres of power, and all of them, what they want basically is their own players to be played in the national team. So now, instead of squaring off between two cities, you're, you're squaring off between four. Uh, and, uh, you know, they started the World Cup with 44 players and tried to whittle, uh, tried to whittle them down a, a, along the way. So that, that, was, that was clearly a, a, a problem. 
In the years that followed the 1966 World Cup, the Brazilian national team was a mess. Stars from the 1958 and 1962 triumphs were still being selected and, as Tim explained earlier, they were showing their age. Meanwhile, the local sports press crucified the side at every opportunity. The rejection got to such a point that the Brazilian FA turned to one of its biggest critics, the fiery football journalist João Saldanha, and they actually offered him the job to manage the national team in 1968. As a comparison, if you're not a football fan, imagine a journalist like Glenn Greenwald being appointed as Donald Trump's chief of staff. That's how much of a left-field choice this was. Saldani accepted, and the press narrative shifted overnight. Suddenly, Brazilian papers were declaring that the national team was in, a cha- in with a chance of winning the 1970 World Cup. And with an astute football brain and a silver tongue, Saldanha got Brazil excited about their national team once again. The team breezed their way through World Cup qualifying by playing some excellent football and the players were nicknamed Saldanha's Beasts. The coach himself became fearless João. Suddenly, Brazil was back. There was just one problem with João Saldanha, though, and it concerns Brazil's military dictatorship, in power at the time after a 1964 coup. Andrew Downey is a Scottish journalist who worked in Brazil for years as a foreign correspondent, and he has compiled an oral history of the 1970 World Cup entitled The Greatest Show on Earth to be published later this year. I asked him about Brazil's new maverick coach. Saldanha was one of these guys who was a larger-than-life character, and he is his, his, his fame, his notoriety, his, his legend has grown in the years since he, he took, took over the Brazil team. Um, you know, Saldanha was, it, a lot of people didn't understand when Saldanha took over because Saldanha was a, 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 an outspoken communist. He was hired in 1968, I think, and maybe the beginning of 69. But he took over, and a lot of people were saying, like, why, why, are they taking, why have they given Saldanha the, the job? Because he's a communist and it's a military dictatorship that are, that are you know, far right. You know, what's going on here? Then, at the beginning of 1970, Saldanha was sacked as Brazil's manager, just weeks before the start of the World Cup. Now, Received Wisdom says that Saldanha was dismissed because of his political beliefs, being a literal card-carrying communist under a right-wing dictatorship. However, the facts don't really stand up to this hypothesis. The, the legend is always that Saldanha was sacked because he said uh, he, he butted heads with Medicine saying, you know, you pick, you pick your cabinet and I'll pick my team. And it wasn't really quite like that. A lot of things had happened with Saldanha beforehand. He'd come up against a lot of people. He had the famous incident where he took, he brought a gun to the Flamengo uh, training camp and was was already to, to fight, it, fight it out with Justrich. He was the Flamengo manager. Um, the player said he was drinking more. The player said that he was getting into to fights. He had one 
fight with a reporter where he he knocked the the the, the tape recorder and broke it, the, the, the tape recorder and knocked out the, the reporter's hands. So he was increasingly highly strung. And this comment about him, you know, him him saying to to to, to Medici, you pick your cabinet and I'll pick my team. He said it as a joke. And you can watch the video and you see him saying this and he's saying it in a jokey kind of manner. He, it wasn't in this confrontational, you leave me alone and I'll leave me alone. And let's hear Tim's take on that as well. I think it's absolutely clear that it revolves around Pelé. This is one element of, of, of 1970 which has been forgotten in history for very good reasons because no one now wants to be seen on the side of proposing it. But there was a debate going on going into the World Cup about whether Pelé should play. Uh, Saldana had fallen out with him. Um, Saldana clearly wasn't convinced that physically Pelé was up to it. Uh, he had he had good support from uh, Aymar Moreira, who'd coached the 62 side, who, who wrote an article saying, I too, meaning me as well as Saldana, think that Pelé shouldn't be in the team. Um, the idea that this that Pelé, now at the veteran stage, even though he was only 29, was uh, if you if you um, pick him that you, you leave the team too light in in midfield, so um, I, I think the the politics behind it may well have uh, have have been part of it, but Sal and Saldana's own behaviour becomes increasingly erratic. Uh, putting Saldana in there was inspired, and so was getting rid of him. And we'll have more on João Saldanha's squabbles with Pelé in episode two of this three-part podcast. But whatever you believe about João Saldanha's sacking, the direct or indirect involvement of Brazil's dictatorship did not end there. There'll be more on that after the break. Hi, my name is Gustavo Ribeiro, I'm the editor-in-chief of the Brazilian Report. As you know, we are an independent news outlet that lives off subscriptions, so you can support our independence by choosing one of our plans for the best content about Brazil in English. If you're already subscribed, then you can also buy us a coffee, with a small donation starting at $4 and going all the way up to whatever your budget and your heart allows. You can help us refill our coffee mugs to continue our 24-7 coverage of COVID-19 in Brazil. Just go to buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report. Buymeacoffee.com slash Brazilian Report. Cheers! Received wisdom dictates that João Saldanha was pushed out of the Brazil job by the military dictatorship. However, even though we showed that that wasn't exactly what happened, the influence of Brazil's military regime on the 1970 World Cup team was in fact very significant, it just manifested itself in different forms. Now, For a bit of context, the World Cup in Mexico comes less than a year after Army General Emilio Gajastazo Medici was chosen by a military junta to become Brazil's third president of its dictatorship era. 
O general Emílio Garrastazu Médici é o 28 presidente da República do Brasil e o terceiro do período revolucionário. Médici's appointment ushered in Brazil's years of lead. This was times where we had government repression of guerrilla dissidents at an all-time high, and those who spoke out against the regime were exiled, imprisoned, tortured, or disappeared in what was truly a gruesome and brutal period of the country's history, which is yet to be properly reckoned with today. But while this was going on at home, Medici's government was also hugely concerned about the country's image abroad. Despite the authoritarianism and repression in the streets, Brazil was enjoying its so-called economic miracle at the time, and the generals worked hard to transmit this idea of Brazil as a country on the rise, diverting attention away from the dictatorship's brutality. And that's where football came in. Even the song that we played in the introduction, which is entitled Pra Frente Brasil, or Forward Brazil, was written by the dictatorship and used to promote the regime to its own population and those around the world, using football and the national team as a vehicle for propaganda. Thus, it became a political goal for Brazil's dictatorship to win the 1970 World Cup. The coaching staff for the national team was filled with members of the military, all the way up to the new coach who replaced João Saldanha, who was former player Mario Zagallo, who worked as an army security guard during the 1950 World Cup hosted in Brazil. Now, the physical preparation of Brazil's players was unlike anything ever seen before, and this is where the military really became involved. Training methods around world football were still rudimentary at this time. But Brazil, with their military coaching staff, were being prepared for war. The squad were being put through army drills and conditioning methods used by NASA astronauts. Let's hear from Andrew Downey on this. I think it was absolutely fundamental because the Brazilians were, were, were convinced that they were technically better than anyone else. Uh, they knew that if they, to win this World Cup, that if they were fitter than everyone else, then there was no reason for them not to win. So that, coming after the, 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 the physicality of the 1960 World Cup, made them realise or, or, or that they had to be in tip-top shape. Also, of course, you had the, the factor of uh, high altitude uh, and heat, thin air. So that was a big deal. They knew about this you know, a long time in advance. They had uh, Claudio Coutinho, who was uh, uh, you know, an army captain who you know, was, very, was quite sophisticated for, for, for his era. He, he spoke different languages and he had gone to the US and he learned about the, the, some of the Nazar tests and the famous Cooper tests. Uh, and he came back and he drew up this big, big plan. Uh, and it worked because if you look at Brazil, how they played, they scored 19 goals in the World Cup, six games. And of the 19 goals, 12 of them came in the second half. So that was proof that, you know, they had the stamina, that they could last for 90 minutes. And it really showed that the work they had put in beforehand was, was a key part in them winning the 1970 World Cup. So we leave this first instalment of a three-part series with Brazil in Mexico, fitter than ever before and ready to make their debut. Next time, we'll take you through Brazil's group games, we'll tell the story behind the world's greatest player at his greatest tournament, 
and we'll have a look back at perhaps the most important match in World Cup history. This was a special edition of the Explaining Brazil podcast, the weekly show brought to you by the reporting staff of the Brazilian Report, the leading English language source of Brazilian news and analysis. So if you like this podcast, please rate Explaining Brazil with five stars wherever you get your podcasts, or you can sign up to the Brazilian Report, which is the journalistic engine behind the show. And we also offer a seven-day free trial, and that gives you full access to the site for a whole week without the need to insert any credit card details whatsoever. So, I'm Ewan Marshall, and I'll see you back here later this week for the second instalment in this special three-part series on the Mexico World Cup in 1970. Until next time.